you're just like first time going into like a war zone and i'm just like you know you're you're on this armored bus flying into baghdad with all this like arm support up in the air and you're just like holy shit what am i what am i doing here i got a camera in my hand <laughs> you know I should, I should have a gun not a camera hi and welcome to drinking with creatives a podcast so on the nose the word creative becomes ironic my name is Jeremy Berger, a documentary filmmaker and senior editor. And each week I sit down with a fellow creative, talk shop, talk life, and have a drink. Ever had to do your best work under pressure? Everyone does. But what if the place where you had to perform was in the middle of a war zone? Kevin Belli is a director and cinematographer who has traveled to the Middle East, capturing some of the real life drama of the people there. We're sitting down for a drink and a chat about everything from green zones to the dread of a slowly dying ceiling fan. Take a listen. Kevin, uh, tell us who you are, what you do, and where we can find you. My name is Kevin Belli. I'm a freelance cinematographer and editor working primarily in documentary. Um, I've been doing it for about 22 years. I'm currently co-directing a feature, and if you'd like to see some samples of my work, you can find me on Vimeo. Just search my name, Kevin Belli, at Vimeo. First question, Kevin, most important question. What are you drinking? I'm drinking uh, Jack's Abbey House Lager. Jack's Abbey is a, a uh, microbrewery micro up here in Massachusetts, located in Framingham. I live in Boston, so Framingham's only uh, 15. Actually, technically, I live in Somerville, Massachusetts, which is just over the river from, from Boston. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so Jack's Abbey. Perfect, perfect. Kevin, we were talking earlier about your love of documentary film. Yeah. Can you tell us how you got started uh, in the medium itself and <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about your early career? Um, I kind of like fell into it, to be honest. Like I was a musician first and foremost, and I spent all my early 20s um, kind of traveling around the country, playing in the punk rock bands, doing a lot of touring, um, just having a lot of fun, um, not making any money, but making it work. And when I went back to school when I was 25, I didn't know what I wanted to go to school for. I just knew I needed to get a bachelor's degree so I didn't feel like a complete uh, lost loser or whatever. Um, just wanted to get that out of the way. And uh, so I just chose communications degree out of random. And while taking communications uh, classes, I end up taking an editing course. And this is in 1997 or eight. And I uh, edited for the first time on an Avid. An Avid in 1997 or 98, whatever it was, was um, you only had two options for editing pretty much. It was either Avid or, or a system called Media 100. And, um, oh, and, yeah. our, and our school was lucky enough to have just gotten Avid. Um, and Avid at the time was only on Mac and it was very expensive to purchase. And so I learned to edit and, um, and the same time I was learning to edit, I was, I took a basic video production course on shooting and I just sort of fell in love with, you know, having a camera in my hand felt very similar to having a guitar in my hand and editing uh, video felt very similar to sitting in my house and recording music onto a four track, you know, recorder. So it just seemed to be these like parallels of like my love for music and then this, this, you know, new love for video making seemed to like, just seemed to be like the perfect, like next 
thing to like get excited about. So I kind of fell into it that way. Um, I did an internship, uh, my, I think my third year of college, I, I did a, an internship with a 2020 in New York City, um, you know, following around the producer and then sitting in with some of the editors. And then I went to go work for a guy named Harvey Hubble, um, who had a production company on a farm in Litchfield, Connecticut. And I assist and I assistant edited on the first two documentaries. Uh, they were my very first two documentary credits. Um, he did a film called Loop Dreams, which was a takeoff of Hoop Dreams, but it, um, he was an assistant director at the time and he made a, a documentary about the making of a low budget film. So his deal was like, I'll be your AD, but you have to let me make a documentary about the filmmaking process. And the film did pretty good. It, it won like best documentary at like Philadelphia and went to some other festivals, but I was an assistant editor on that. And, um, and I also was an assistant editor on another film he did called, uh, the hell is that one called? Uh, Global, Global Village, Global Pillage. It was like a environmental activist sort of film. So I kind of got my first, you know, got my feet wet in the doc world working for Harvey, uh, interning for Harvey. And that kind of got me started. Um, my first job out of college was working for ABC, uh, ABC News. And I was an editor for ABC News for about a year and um, really didn't like really didn't like it. Um, and I was about to move out to LA just to see what was, you know, what was out there for me. And my brother started dating, dating someone whose sister just happened to be starting a production company in Boston. And uh, he said, well, you should really talk to this woman, Beth Murphy. She's my girlfriend's sister and she's looking for people. She just started a documentary production company up in Boston, looking for people. So I went up and met with her and I had basically no experience. Mm -hmm. She took me on as an assistant editor for a film that she was doing for the Lifetime Network at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, the main editor quit <laughs> after like a month of me being there. Oh, and wow. she, offered, she offered me the editing job. So I took over editing on this, on this documentary that was gonna go right to broadcast on Lifetime. Um, in addition to editing, she also asked me to go shoot a last minute interview for her. So it was also my first, uh, it was not only my first editing, you know, the act being the actual editor credit, but it was also my first cinematography credit uh, because I got to go shoot this interview in uh, Kansas City. Um, so it was like everything kind of just happened at once. Like within a month and a half or so, I was the editor and she was sending me out to go shoot and I was like, wow, I'm actually traveling and shooting. This is like exactly what I wanted to be doing. Yep. And, uh, and I thought I was only going to do that one film with her. And it's, and this is back in like the early two thousands when you can like sell an idea to like a network, like history channel, and they would purchase these one-off documentary ideas and they would give you a budget of say like $350,000 to go make this 42 minute, you know, documentary um for them to air in a broadcast hour um so it was like a you know totally different time when you could just we could exist this way so just as like our first film with lifetime was wrapping up she got this idea sold to the history channel so i stayed on to do that one and i shot on that and edited on that and that led into another film we did for discovery and then that led into our very first feature length film which is a film called um Beyond Belief, which uh, aired, it premiered at 
Tribeca Film Festival in 2007. And that was our very first feature-length film. So it all just sort of, you know, I went back to school for communications, kind of played around with the software, you know, with this Avid software and cameras. It just like took some internships and things just sort of fell into place over the next like five, six years until next thing I know I'm you know, I'm at Tribeca with the first film I had shot and edited on. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is kind of easy. You just make a film and it goes to Tribeca. And, you know, it would take me years after I had to realize that's not the case. We just got very lucky with that first film. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, but I felt like, oh, man, this, is, this isn't too bad, you know. You just go make a film and Tribeca lets you premiere it. Like, <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, no one ever talks about the luck. Yeah. Tarantino, Kevin Smith, Robert Rodriguez, <laughs> never talk about that little factor called luck. You know, that was on their side for their first features. Yeah, because once you get that first foot in the door, you know, then our second film. Uh, uh, so, so to step back, Beyond Belief, our first feature film, which is really the beginning of my real actual documentary career, because it was like, it was actually a feature film that wasn't this like, you know, made for tv broadcast type of documentary with like voiceover and it was like an actual you know doc film mm -hmm. um uh that was also like you know that film took us to afghanistan um we were following these two 9-11 widows who they were both there's these two 9-11 widows who were both pregnant at the time of 9-11 and each one of their husbands was on each one of the planes that left boston and went to New York oh, God. and um, and they met through a support group shortly after or through mutual friends. I forget how they actually came together, met, but, and they became these great friends and they were obviously, you know, had this connection because their husbands are dead and they were both pregnant. Um, and so they came up with this idea to do this, like they started this organization called Beyond the 11th and they, they decided to do this bike ride, this three day bike ride from New York to Boston to do the journey home that their husbands were never able to do. And so oh. the, the, the film started as, oh, it's going to be this film, you know, uh, you know, about this journey, this three day bike journey, and that'll be our spine. And we'll build all the stories, all the storytelling off of that. Mm -hmm. But then what happened is we got like a, a year or two into filming and they decided that they want to, um, the, the money they were going to take for beyond the 11th, was going to go to support Afghan war widows to kind of like, you know, uh, build these bridges between like their losses and uh, the widows in Afghanistan's losses, you know? Oh, wow. So this, this amazing gesture of just like, you know, yeah, we're going to take the, this money and we're going to donate it to these widows over there because they need it more than we do. Um, and then they decided to go over there and meet with the women individually, like in person. And that's where the film kind of took like a, a, a turn because we're like oh wait we thought the spine of the film was going to be this bike ride now it's like all about building up to this journey to afghanistan where these two nine level widows go and meet with these afghan war widows and becomes a totally different film so now the bike ride becomes this like you know part of act one you know yeah. <laughs> so um the way things happen so that first film was just such a lesson in not only the difference between making something for television back then, today it's different, but back then it was a very big difference. Um, but also this like, you know, how you build story and how you let, and how you let stories sort of like develop and, you know, uh, come to you and in your ability to sort of like, um, 
move with that and like like alter your course and and keep incorporating like as new things are being captured incorporating those new things and, and creating this new narrative so there's this huge lesson just like storytelling and filmmaking and like i mean it's always gonna have this special place in my heart for just that was the first film that was the one that taught me so much about everything going forward and working for beth murphy the director who sherry had this really long history of making documentaries for tv um just working under her tutelage too and like you know um having her sort of brilliance to like help me navigate that as well was you know so i just have this special place for that first film um and now then let me ask you let me ask sure, you because sure. you're because you're an editor was there a part of your editor brain that was just kind of fitzing out when you saw the entire story that you thought you were going to make transform into something much bigger and larger and more unruly something you couldn't control anymore um i i, th I think I think because it's not like we already had uh, like a really good rough cut of the entire film. Mm -hmm. It was easy to shift gears because we were still working on like basically funding trailers and like, uh, you know, working our way through the footage and still, we were still in that place of like seeing it starting to take shape, but not so far in the throes of a cut that mm -hmm. it's hard to, to like shift gears. I feel like once you have like a cut, that's when it becomes painstaking to like totally throw wrenches into things. Um, although it happens all the freaking time and it happens, you know, as you learn, as you edit documentaries, you end up like ripping <laughs> these cuts that you think are so good. End yeah. up like, you know, two months later, you're like, Oh my God, that cut was horrible. I can't believe that that even exists, you know? Um, so no, it wasn't hard to shift gears. If that's the question, it was, um, you know, I was also flying by the seat of my pants because I'd never cut a feature like film before. So everything just felt kind of, you know, um, exciting. And so it didn't feel overwhelming. And I, I didn't have enough experience under my belt to, to have too many opinions. I was just sort of like trying to keep up, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, I'm interested, like you said, because you mentioned that you went over to Afghanistan and visit with these uh, Afghani women. Was that? So I didn't. So he, on that first film, um, it was me and another guy named Sean Flynn uh, who did the filming for that. And he actually went to Afghanistan for that film. I stayed back and was editing. So he, he did the first big, like, uh, war zone trip, you know? My Afghanistan experiences come later in a different film. But uh, for this film in particular, I didn't actually travel overseas. Um, I, I did a lot of the filming here in the States, in New York and Boston and elsewhere. And I did the editing, but he actually did the filming for Afghanistan. The, the, next film, the next film after that was the one where I started traveling to like war zones and all the fun stuff. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get to the fun stuff. Yeah, let's... And, and and don't get me wrong, I sense a certain amount of facetiousness there. Uh, <laughs> well, there nothing bad happened, so it's you know um, any any war zone you can walk away from. Yeah, exactly. Oh God, that well, would the, the, this, well, the second, get in trouble on the internet for that. One. <laughs> no, you won't. Um, so the second film we did, so that so that one premiered in two thousand seven, but before that even premiered, we had already started working on our second feature. Mm -hmm. And that was a feature called The List. And um, in that, we would end up working on for a long time. It, it ended up premiering again at Tribeca, but not until 2012. Um, 
and we started working on it probably i think we did the first shoot for it like 2005 or something um but it was about uh iraqi it was about the iraqis who came to work for us the u.s after the invasion um in 2003 they came to work for us as interpreters and um uh you know, working with the soldiers in the, in, in the field so they could like, you know, talk with local people and everything else. So, um, so they were translators and interpreters who believed in, so either they believed in the American cause of us being over there and they were just happy to say that I was gone or they were just looking for some easy money because times are tough after the invasion in yeah. Iraq. Well, regardless, either way, they were, they became friends and allies of the U.S. soldiers and, um, um, so our film was about this guy named Kirk Johnson, who, who had worked overseas, had worked, had worked uh, with the Iraqis, and he was appalled at the fact that, like, you know, these people were sacrificing their lives to be interpreters and translators for the U.S. Army, and, you know, they had been screened and vetted by the Army to come and work alongside our soldiers, but when it came time, like, when their lives came under attack because of, like, militants, um, the U.S. was very like hesitant about bringing them over here because it's like political suicide to let these Iraqis into the United States, even though they had been screened and vetted by the U.S. Army and, and had these letters of recommendation from generals and soldiers and obviously good people, you know. Yeah. So he started this thing called the List Project, which was this organization to, you know, uh, it became the biggest pro bono refugee effort in the history of like pro bono work to, 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 you know, give support to get these Iraqis to safety, you know? So our film was based around his story, but also like, you know, we wanted to find three or four Iraqis to be other characters in the film, like follow their stories as, as they're trying to get help, try to get to safety and then hopefully filming them actually, you know, make it to us or making it somewhere where they were safe. So we did a lot of trips to Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Cairo. Um, and this is all like between 2007 and 2011, I think was the last trip. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. I got a couple of questions about that. Sure. One, what was your involvement with, because I imagine you would have to coordinate with uh, ground military forces on the behalf of the United States. Yeah. Well, we did do embeds. If you're implying, if you're asking about embeds, um, I'm we, not quite sure I understand what embed means. An embed just means you travel with the military. So, like, um, well, yeah, there there was some level, and I'm not the best person to answer all the all the uh, all the particulars about how we got permissions because that would be Beth Murphy, the director producer. Um, but our first trip there, we had to go through. We did have to fly in through the military. So we went to Kuwait and we were on a, on a base in Kuwait. And from Kuwait, we flew, I think it's a C-130. a C Is that the plane? It's like a passenger transport plane for the army um, or C-150, one or the other. I think it's a C-130. So we had to travel by military passenger plane from Kuwait into Baghdad. And, um, and that was kind of crazy because you're landing in the middle of freaking Iraq. They're bringing you in these like these 
giant armored cars to get you to like a base and then from the base to get us into the actual green zone um in the area we'd be staying just outside which uh just outside of the green zone uh they brought us on this thing called a rhino is a big steel bulletproof school bus basically where you're traveling from the base into into like you know the outskirts of the green zone and you know you got like you could always travel at night because that's you know after curfew so it's the safest time to travel and you got like a helicopter escort you got humvees escorting you and mraps and <laughs> you're just like first time going into like a war zone and i'm just like you know you're you're on this armored bus flying into baghdad with all this like armed support up in the air and you're just like holy shit what am i what am i doing here i got a camera in my hand <laughs> You know, I should, I should have a gun, not a camera. And uh, so that was my first experience going into Iraq. And But once we were there, we didn't have a lot of interaction with the military. Like once we were there, it was more just we had a, we had an interpreter uh, and translator who was also our, our, our car guy. He drove us around. And he was awesome. He was a fantastic guy. At one point, he was actually going to be a character in the film, but we, it never ended up happening um but he was with us the whole the, for that first trip the whole time um and we stayed with uh we stayed with um the guardian the newspaper in england they had their own house in baghdad so we stayed so we stayed at the it's like this whole neighborhood that was like guarded but the, it was all like the 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 press all the news people had this like little neighborhood just outside of the green zone um it it was like in the i forget if they call it the palace area of baghdad i can't remember what they called it but um so we were staying with them and then you just do these day trips every day you you get up and you go do the filming you want to film and capture what you can capture then you try to get back before nightfall and then at nightfall you just sort of chill in your house you know with your hour and a half of electricity a day and you know <laughs> so um I would say that the, you know, and then I, and then, so for the most part, we were just like looking for stories. We were looking for uh, interpreters, translators that we could interview and hopefully they would be, you know, okay with us, like following them, following their story, following them. Cause it's a big risk. I mean, you're asking someone who maybe be, who might be under threat to allow a West, very Western looking cameraman to like hang out with them and film them on their day-to-day -day while they're like, you know, under danger from like militant groups. It's like, you know, we could be adding to their. So finding those people and finding the perfect situations of people that we could actually film with and make and have stories was really difficult to navigate that. But, um, but we did land on a few different characters and they all made it to safety. And that was one of the caveats, like we wouldn't put them in the film unless they were safe. We were going to like release a film with these people still being under threat somewhere. Um, so yeah. Um, and we did multiple trips to Iraq, uh, you know, Syria, Jordan, and one of our characters was had fled Iraq and landed in Cairo. So we filmed with him in Cairo until he came to the States. Um, you know, those early trips to Iraq, I think the only time I felt really nervous, um, there's two times I felt really nervous. Uh, one time we had to drive from Baghdad all the way up to Suleimania, which is up in like Kurdistan, um, which is like about a six and a half hour, seven hour drive. And you have to go through checkpoints 
and some of the checkpoints were were militant groups in disguise and they would ask you to hand over your passports to see where you're from and who you were so you, every time you hit a checkpoint you know you're a little bit nervous um of who's actually there is that actually iraqi army or is that or is that militant group um and then another time was i did an embed which is i traveled with the with the marines um in fallujah so we did a night patrol in fallujah um and and that was more to capture footage of like what do these translators interpreters do like what's their daily job look like like here they are hanging out with these soldiers doing these patrols let's get some footage of that so we have some like b-roll basically of like translators interpreters so the marines brought us on this like night patrol so like three o'clock in the morning i'm walking down like you know divided highway in fallujah <laughs> With like all these are, you know, Marines shining flashlights up in the windows of houses that could see out onto the highway and, you know, looking over T walls and just, you know, just kind of crazy in the sense that like, I always have these moments where I'm like, I, I don't really have that much of an interest in uh, international affairs. I kind of fell into documentary and I kind of fell into these moments of my life. And, um, and I couldn't have imagined when I went back to school at 25 that, you know, five, six years later, whatever it was, I would be in Fallujah <laughs> walking down some random street at, you know, three in the morning with a camera in my hand. Like, like this wasn't ever part of my plan. It just sort of happened. Um, like, you know, each step kind of led me to the next step. And it just, here I am doing this. And like, I had no idea where, I couldn't have told you where Iraq was or Afghanistan or, you know, I knew nothing about any of these places. Um, so, I mean, I'm so grateful for those opportunities and for that job because, you know, uh, going to work for Beth kind of like opened me up to more of like the world at large. Um, certainly made me a way more worldly person and, and, and kind of fed my desire for like world, you know, international travel and seeing more of the world. So, yeah. But the list was the first, my first trip into like dangerous, dangerous territories. Um, even though we never had any like, like real close calls or anything, it's just a lot. It's just very intense being in those environments because you're constantly looking over your shoulder and you're constantly nervous and you're constantly like feeling some level of like anxiety and stress. But we never had any major problems. So, you know, little mild things here and there, but nothing, nothing major. I'm curious how you slept on the first night. Badly, only because it was like a hundred and like ten degrees, hundred and fifteen degrees in Baghdad. Oh and, and and our house had our and matter of fact, we had one week where the average temperature was like 124. I remember we had this week of like 120-something degrees. And it was during the same week that we drove to Sulaimania. So I was in a car driving seven hours in this crazy heat, and the car I was in had no AC. So it was brutal, oh. but, but at night it was hilarious because like, you know, we, when we invaded Iraq, we completely demolished their infrastructure. So yes. like water, electricity, all the basic needs, just like a fucking nightmare. So there's only like an hour and a half, two hours of electricity a day, but the house we were staying at had a generator, but, but every night they'd have to let that generator like cool off. So like when it ran out of gas at like one in the morning, two in the morning, they would just let it die 
And then they would start back up at like six, seven in the morning. So like at night, and you'll probably appreciate this. I know you will. At night, I, I would be laying on my bed and I had a ceiling fan. And I knew that the generator was the one thing keeping the AC going and keeping the, and keeping the ceiling fan going. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I'd hear that thing start to choke and die, I would watch my ceiling fan slowly, like, like start to like turn slower and slower. <laughs> and it reminded me of like, do you remember the movie Total Recall? Yes. When yes. they shut up, when they shut off the air <laughs> on Mars and there, and there's the big giant turbine in the hallway. That's like moving the air through yep. and all the, all those like freaks, like the, the three boobed woman and everything. They all like, just look and they're staring at that fan, like slowly, like coming to a halt as they're like, no, they're about to suffocate. Yeah. That was me laying in bed in Iraq. <laughs> I was just like watching the fan slowly stop. I could just feel the heat just like take over my body. Like, like cause oh. you know, it would get down to like 108 or 105 at night, but it was still 105 or whatever, you know? Oh, so, God. Yeah. I would just always think of that scene from Total Recall. And I'm like, this is my Total Recall moment. <laughs> just watching hope for a restaurant <laughs> <and> die. <laughs> With a I mean, of this fan. The one thing I was grateful for for those first trips for that film, the list was we got to see Damascus because um, we actually did a we actually drove. It was hard to get into Syria. We had to pull somehow. Beth pulled some favor to get us into Syria. I don't remember how, but somehow. But we actually drove from Jordan to Damascus. So from Amman, Jordan to Damascus, we drove over the border mm-hmm. and managed to get into Syria relatively easy that way. And um, I'm just so happy I got to see Damascus um, before all the devastation because yes. Damascus is beautiful. And um, and I mean, back then it was like, you know, the big threat was ISI before ISIS, you know, when it was just the Islamic State of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, you know, Syria was still well put together and, um, and Damascus was just absolutely beautiful. So it broke my heart later on when Syria was getting bombed and seeing that Damascus was getting destroyed. I'm like, oh my God, like some of those buildings, it's like, you're not talking about hundreds of years old. You're talking (laughs) thousands, you know, know, it's just so, you know, uh, war is just a fucking brutal thing, man. Unbelievable. But yeah. Now follow-up question. Yeah. How'd you sleep when you got back? I actually slept in some ways, I think I slept better there. The first few nights back from any trip like that, and one of the things about being in a place where you're so nervous about your surroundings is that it's almost like a perfect state of like, you know, Zen. It's very Buddhist because you're so hyper aware of your surroundings that you're constantly just like forced to be in the moment. And um, and so you, even though you're a little nervous, you also feel really great because you're just so in the moment all the time that there's no there's no dwelling on anything there's no like so it's not until you get back from a place like that that you when you let your guard down that you start to feel all the anxiety and stuff that you were maybe were feeling there so i actually didn't sleep that great the first couple nights back i I think i had a hard time sleeping because of that because like Mm. my guard was down and i was no longer so hyper in the moment um i didn't sleep great there either because of the heat but it's more to do with the heat, not with mentally st- mental stuff. But I think the first couple of nights back is more of like a mental, emotional thing. Like just being so grateful to be back and also not having to have that sort of like 
crazy awareness all the time. Mm. I, I think it just made me like a little anxious in a different way, you know? Um, yeah. But I think I understand why people, people never, and I'm not trying to really, I'm not trying to draw a parallel between my experience and a soldier's experience because they're actually, you know, um, but I can understand the idea of like, if someone has like a hard time, but then want to go back to a war zone and do like a fifth, sixth tour. Mm -hmm. I think I kind of understand it because at least when you're there, you're so hyper in the moment. You're so aware that you actually, there's like a, there's some sort of a weird piece with just being so hyper aware mm -hmm. and, you know, but those, 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 people have issues. The reason why it's called post-traumatic stress disorder is because it's not so you get back here and you can let your guard down that all those emotions that were being held at bay come flooding through. And that's when you have a hard time. I think when you're there, it's easier because you, you have no choice. There's, there's, you know, where your brain goes is there's no options. It's like, no, you have to be in the moment, yes. you know? So it's someone should write a book about Zen and the art of like war zones, you know? <laughs> <laughs> i can think There's of a that... few zen practitioners that would probably be a little upset at that title. I know. <laughs> totally but yeah man and then the film we did after that we did one about a girl's school in afghanistan and this is the third and final feature-length film i did with this director uh we did a film called what tomorrow brings and we filmed at a a, a village halfway in Afghanistan, halfway between Kabul and Swat Valley, Pakistan, like right in the middle. So not, you know, halfway between Kabul and where Malala was like, you know, shot, you know. Right. Um, so we were in this very uh, posthume conservative village that was right near uh, a kind of like dangerous area called Tarakal. Um, and, you know, we had to get permission from the village elders to even film in this village and they were very protective. And, um, you know, so that was, I mean, Afghanistan is just such a different beast than the Middle East. It's, it's just very different. It's very rural. It's very like uh, tribal. Um, and it's really feels way more cut off from the rest of the world. You know, it's just, it's a totally different beast. So we were there a number of trips. Um, staying in Kabul and driving every day out to the uh, village uh, for the school we were filming. But it was the very first all-girls school in this particular village. So we were, you know, doing a film about that. So about girls' education and the dangers involved in girls being educated in Afghanistan and all that. So, and I was a co-editor and co-cinematographer on that. So. If you got the call, would you go back? I did get the call to go back, uh, um after i stopped working for beth or no actually i was still working for beth i went back to iraq for a film called the peacemaker i was actually a co-director oh. i was a co-director of photography for a film called the peacemaker which was directed by a guy named james demo who's become a really good friend of mine um and for him i went back to iraq and we also went and filmed in nigeria which was actually probably the most dangerous place I've ever filmed. Nigeria was the one place where I felt really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, it was right after all those girls had been kidnapped by the uh, uh, Boko Haram. Yes. And, um, and we were, you know, we were in Kaduna. Um, and every, every time I got out of the van to film, there was like, you know, four, I guess they were, we were kind of guests of the government. So I think they were like government 
like military or something, but it's just they they were just there with their AK 47s. You know, every time I jump out of the van to film something, I got like these four or five guys with AKs, you know, <laughs> standing Jesus around Christ. me. But but West but Westerners being kidnapped in that area of, of is pretty prominent. So they're very protective of us. Um, but yeah, I probably felt the most nervous in Nigeria, believe it or not. It's a uh, it was crazy there, but uh, but yeah. So I went back to Iraq for that. Um, would I go back to Afghanistan? I don't think so, man. I think I think I'm kind of done with all that. Um, if it was a really intriguing story, and um, it, it would it really depend on the circumstances. But I gotta be honest, I'm so glad I did it, and I'm so glad I had those experiences. And you know, and you know, we we went to all these places a number of times, so it wasn't like just one trip, but. Um, uh, I'm really glad I did it because the experience and how it's changed me and shaped me as a human being and how it's made me look at different parts of the world differently as a result. All that I'm so grateful for. Um, but I don't know if I would choose to go back to any of them just because, um, I don't know, I feel like I kind of got away with something too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to push my. I don't want to push my luck. I feel like whatever lessons about humanity and whatever lessons about myself I was supposed to learn, I feel like I learned them. I don't feel like I need to prove or there's no reason for me to do it anymore. You know, I mean, I still love to travel all over the world. I mean, me and my girlfriend, you know, we do a lot of international travel. Uh, every year we do a trip. Um, so it's maybe a person who's not scared of the world. That's for sure. But. Um, so I'm grateful for for that, but yeah, I just don't feel like there's any reason for me to go back to any of those places. Um, there's nothing that feels important enough for me to go back, and I and I really do believe that, man. I I believe we all we all get put into situations, um, and I'm sure you can relate to this as well. I'm sure everybody can, but I feel like you get put into situations in life. I'm not a religious person, so I'm not going to pull God into this and say like God always gives you know whatever that saying is, mm -hmm. but. Um, I do think we're tested and challenged in certain ways for a reason. Mm -hmm. And and I would like to think that those reasons are to point you in a more humane direction mm -hmm. to make you a better human being. I'd like to think whatever forces are out there that they're trying to direct us to become the best version of this, this, you know, matter that we're made up of, you know? And, um, and I feel like the people who really, um, who really rebel or are repelled by those though they're repelled by those things because of fear because of whatever reasons i feel like they i feel like they're missing out on just becoming the best version of themselves and i think as as a society we miss out because they're not becoming that yes. um uh so i just i know it's a very privileged thing to be able to travel but i just really do believe that if everyone in the u.s had the ability to go to these places and meet these people face to face and experience some of the things that I've been very fortunate and privileged enough to experience. I don't think we would have some, some of the harsh racist like issues that we have in the world, because I think there'd be a little bit more of an understanding of what people fucking go through, you know? Um, Absolutely. And, 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 and it's just unfortunate that it's such a privilege to travel that it's so like, you know, it just, it's too bad. Thanks, Kevin. If you'd like to know more about Kevin, you can find a link to his Vimeo page in the show notes. For this episode and more, please head to drinkingwithcreatives.com. 
and please support us there on our Patreon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your preferred platform. My name is Jeremy Berger. I hope you're well, and we'll see you next time.